0: broadband we need it for work and for school for our health and our economy what's being done to bring broadband internet access within reach of every american let's talk about it now on rural broadband today here's your host stephen smith
1: Kara Malali is the market development manager for emerging markets with corning uh, corning's a major manufacturer of course of fiber optic cable along with other equipment that providers need to deliver broadband. I heard Kara speak uh, on a recent industry webinar, and I knew that I needed to have her on the show uh, to come talk to us about some of the topics that she offered great insight on there. I think you'll find a particular interest, uh, her thoughts on partnerships in delivering broadband, as well as uh, various funding opportunities. And so uh, here's my interview with Kara Malali. And thanks for tuning in today. Uh, my special guest is Kara Mulally with Corning, and we are delighted to, uh, to have her on the show today. Thanks for joining us, Kara. Thanks for having me. So uh, for those of our, our, our listeners who may not be familiar with, with Corning, you are, you're certainly uh, one of those manufacturers that uh, you're, you're in the background there. And certainly from the consumer standpoint, people may not be familiar with you. Those in the industry uh, certainly are. But if you would take a moment and give us an introduction and an overview of uh, Corning's yeah. offerings, your scope of work, and and what you bring to the market.
0: Absolutely. Corning has been in operation for nearly 170 years. And we're kind of embedded in many of the different things that you touch every day. You just don't know that we're behind it. So it's all based in ceramics. Uh, and so 50 years ago, optical fiber we invented the, the low loss fiber that has evolved to the point that we use today for all manner of communications networks. But we're more than just cable. There's uh, an entire suite of hardware products connectivity that is required to you know, connect all of those different fiber strands to deliver the, the services and signals that, uh, that are necessary to connect the world. So we've been in the cabling. We make the glass, we make the cables, we make the connectors, we make the hardware, closures, um, even in-home wall plates and things, jumpers in the central office, everything you need tip to tip from you know the source of the signal to the end user are products that are in our portfolio from an optical communication standpoint. One of the things that I think people often don't realize either kind of a behind the scenes thing is Corning was actually instrumental in the creation of what is now the fiber broadband association. So we were one of the founding members of the FTTH council and have been a member of the board ever since. And that's true in the U S but also, um, our participation in all of the global fiber to the home councils is pretty prominent as well.
1: And that association is, is a real leader, uh, in the industry, um, Certainly, when it comes to advocating, um, d- just in addition to serving the members, of course, uh, who are uh, serving the broadband industry, but really uh, also in a role of advocacy when it comes to shaping the conversation nationally. And, I, and I'll let you talk about that for a second. But a great example of that is the recent uh, Ardoff offering uh, auction through the uh, FCC. Uh, the the fiber broadband association I know has been very involved in uh, following up on that and there was a webinar this week about the uh, the uh, the the low Earth orbit uh, satellite the you know Elon Musk's uh, Starlink uh, getting so much of that offering and they sponsored some uh, studies on that and just really trying to look out for the public well being give us a give us a, an idea of the scope of the fiber broadband association.
0: They really are. Um, Advocacy is one of kind of the main tenets. Uh, Education is another. And generally, people like to learn from their peers. And so their shows and their educational curriculum and their Fiber for Breakfast series that they've instituted since COVID started really is about helping people share their stories, share their perspectives outside of, you know, exclusively the policy realm. Now, on the policy front, they are very active, Um, you know, we're very familiar with Uh, a lot of the studies that they put forth, contribute to white papers and and, uh, investigation and research in many cases as well. And it's really important. And I think what you saw in the RDoF with so many gigabit level speed bidders uh, was really because they helped change the legislation to encourage more penalty if you will for the non gigabit speed so that money that was being provided by the government would be spent on networks that are going to last right all fiber networks that are going to last or high speed networks that won't be outdated in 3 or 5 years before the subsidies even run out
1: great point well certainly the 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 impetus for starting this program uh, this this podcast was that trying to stay on top of the the evolving news as so much is happening and so much is changing in the the rural broadband arena how have you in your position with Corning seen uh, the the broadband activity change say over the past five years particularly in uh, rural America
0: it's fascinating I've been doing this now um, a long time <laughs> over 20 years mm-hmm. and what we've seen in recent history is there have been what I like to think of as pioneers, right? Individuals that are either advocates or um, become their own broadband providers, if you will. There, there's an, a guy that uh, comes to mind, Mike Bosch in Baldwin City, Kansas, right? He created an entire company, a fiber broadband company, RG Fiber, because he wanted to be able to stay in his small town. Uh, and those pioneers, right, those flyers that were really out there blazing the trail five, 10 years ago are the ones that were the norm back then. Not that fiber was normal in the rurals, but they were the reason that any small community was getting anything at all um, outside of, you know, DSL at that time. and you see it also in folks like Chattanooga, right? Uh, EPB in Chattanooga um, were kind of pioneers in, in bringing fiber to their entire community. And what we've seen over more recent history is you don't need to have an individual beating the drum for years and years and years to get something accomplished because people are recognizing the need, right? That's why we've had more government subsidy funding, that's why we're seeing more people in the private equity realm willing to invest in fiber networks, is that it's it's not a flash in the pan, right? This is something that is needed. It's going to be a sustained need for years and years to come. And there's just, the wave has finally caught up to those, those pioneers and those early adopters, and now it's becoming more mainstream. So the shift I would say in the last few years is Folks aren't going through multi-year studies. They're not going through multi-year bureaucratic uh, activities on how much might it cost and feasibility and those sorts of things. And instead, they're choosing partners in the industry that can give them good guidance and they're moving forward much more quickly than they have in years past.
1: So you have seen uh, not only these, um, I guess, these incumbent providers um, that that you uh, refer to there, but also some uh, some new entrants over the last particularly over the last five years into the rural broadband space
0: yeah absolutely the uh, the municipal folks have stepped up um, you know city of fill in the blank uh, have stepped up over the years to work alone or work in conjunction with uh, utilities either city-owned or private in their areas to uh, to bring their own broadband networks when the incumbents failed to do so at speeds that they were needing or requesting. Um, electrical cooperatives themselves, right, outside of maybe a city partnership, have instituted a lot of broadband activity here in, in recent years. Many electrical cooperatives were awardees in uh, this recent phase one auction. And, and many of them actually have to create kind of a subsidiary company to offer broadband services. Their charter in life uh, as a cooperative, as a nonprofit, doesn't necessarily allow them to scope into broadband delivery. And so there's um, you know, oftentimes a business entity that needs to be created in order to do that and create a little bit of a, a separation there. And one of the things that I think is really curious and we'll see how it plays out going forward uh, are some of these fixed wireless access providers that now in mass seem to be more interested in pushing fiber that much more deep in their networks, uh, even to all fiber networks in some cases. Where again, we had a pioneer many years ago that was delivering microwave broadband to his community, exhausted his spectrum, and decided to overbuild his existing footprint with fiber and then redirect that, um, that wireless spectrum to other folks and, and grab more market share in his area. So we've seen it in pockets over the course of the last seven, eight years uh, across all these different types of operators. But now it just seems like the tide has turned and more and more people are going to all fiber networks to deliver the speeds they need.
1: Well, it certainly uh, ha- has been proven to be uh, by far the most reliable Uh, technology to get uh, broadband out out to the masses. Is that right?
0: Yeah, it's operationally cheaper to operate a all fiber network versus uh, any kind of electronics in the field where you need to power electronics in the field. Um, And anything with a conductor like a metal conductor, whether that be coax or, or twisted pair type of copper Networks also require conditioning and and more remediation work uh, to keep them running smoothly. So operationally it's a it's a much more effective cost effective network to to run. Uh, but what we're also seeing is that because of its lifespan and its durability and you know security and th- there's just a lot of little things, nuances that make it uh, a better choice all around.
1: So, Kara, there is a lot of activity. There's a tremendous interest and really as as much momentum as as I've ever seen toward solving this world broadband challenge. Depending on what numbers you look at, you know, we're at 20 million or 40 or 60 or whatever million people who do not have access to a quality and reliable broadband network. You know, as we're sitting here uh, recording this interv- interview in February 2021, we have uh, the off auction. We see numerous states with uh, their own broadband funding program either up and running or, or in the works. We see, um, you know, the ReConnect grants got funded for a third phase. And we, we see a lot of money and a lot of will, it seems, to really solve this uh real broadband challenge from your standpoint, uh, speak to this momentum and, and what you think the outlook is for say the rest of this year. And certainly it's, it's all heavy on everyone's mind that that everyone needs reliable broadband coming uh, through this pandemic. And we're certainly, we're not out of the woods yet, but you know, we've we, a lot of people have gone home to uh, work from home <laughs> and, and telehealth and education. And so it's much more important now. What do you see on the near horizon and, uh, you know, know, looking ahead for uh, fiber and uh, real broadband in in general?
0: I think you're absolutely right. The, The pandemic has certainly forced people to look at, you know, flexibility, working from home, schooling from home, telehealth, all those things you mentioned in a completely different light, right? It was a nice to have, right? If you wanted to work from home, and you had a reliable connection, okay, well, then go ahead. Or maybe you still had pushback from, from the company you work for. But now it's become a necessity in many cases. And it's a lifestyle. I think people are not going to want to necessarily have to give up once the, you know, the fear of, uh, of COVID relinquishes somewhat. But when you think about what, what does that mean for our industry and what momentum do we have, the decisions, I think, are going to be coming that much more quickly, right? They're, it's no longer a nice-to-have, it's a must-have, so people are going to be biased more towards action rather than um, reaction and sitting there looking at uh, feasibility studies for years on end and you know discussing it with their board of directors at nauseum. So I think you're going to see that, that speed of decision-making increase. And with that, I think, is going to be much more widespread collaboration, whether that's collaboration between, you know, peers, if you will, uh, to understand how they built it, what they did, what lessons did they learn, but also collaboration within the vendor community. And when I say the vendor community, I don't just mean the people who provide the product, but people who also provide the services those that are helping with design, those that are helping construction, those that are helping to market your services as a new entrant into broadband. You know, do you have a brand? Do you have a logo? What services are you gonna offer from a a speed and price point perspective? There's just a tremendous amount of knowledge out there and entities that have these niche pieces that fit into the puzzle of delivering good broadband, not only from a speed perspective, but from an experience perspective so that your end users have a good experience with your brand. And so all of these players are going to be coming together in, in new and different ways to make networks a reality for some of these new entrants. And that makes us very excited, right? We like it when more people are, interested in building networks, the challenge comes in what the natural constraints are in building a network. Naturally, there's usually um, a a bottleneck, if you will, in the early planning design phase. There's also then, generally speaking, some kind of learning curve for the technicians, the people that are actually building the network, and so that labor component can be um, bit of a bottleneck. And then, even in some cases, if you're not scheduling the work appropriately, uh, the supply of products, right, can create some downtime too. And so, I think what we're going to see is with many more entrants looking to build networks and build them faster, we're going to have a bit of a labor crunch and a material crunch in the short term. And the labor can be, you know, the folks putting in the actual infrastructure in the ground, but it could also be, you know, your back office support, you know, getting your customer service experience people onboarded or identifying the company you're going to outsource those works to. It could be your design engineering staff, um, your network planning staff. It, it's not only laborers, if you want to think of it that way, but labor in general, I think is going to be, you um, something people look at and figure out ways. Do I do this in-house or do I outsource it? And if I outsource it, who do I go to? Who's reliable? Who of those outsourced community people have the right capacity to support my needs as well?
1: Uh, Kara, I said in on a a webinar recently in in which I heard you talk about uh, two uh, really important things that really led me to uh, reach out and bring you onto the show, because I feel like our listeners who are looking at entering uh a, a, the broadband business be they um you know electric cooperatives or, or municipals getting into it or even those incumbent uh, telco providers the community based folks who are you know looking to expand outside their their service area i, I feel like you had some uh, some very helpful uh lines of thought for them and i want to want to dive into those for for a minute and one of those is being the uh, the benefits of looking for partnerships. And I know that Corning certainly has, uh, you know, worked with providers in that capacity and, and you have some case studies and examples maybe that, that you might could share with us why you think partnerships and considering that, that type of framework is uh, something that providers need to consider.
0: Absolutely. I think partnerships and, you know, we don't, Our legal team doesn't love the word partnerships because you you might work together on one thing and then maybe not the next. But uh, legalese aside, I think that these puzzle pieces that are being fit together for a particular project can comprise of multiple different um, entities. And then, you know, you disband and you all come together or different groups of people come together to tackle the next problem, depending on the needs of that operator or that town Uh, depending on who, who's building the network. You know, we're in the midst um, right now of of supporting Fujitsu on their build in Traverse City, Michigan. And that's one where the city um, saw a need and worked with Traverse City Light and Power, their electrical arm, to devise a method. And they started this conversation, you know, years ago, back in, I think, 2017. And didn't start to break ground and really make it um, come to life until 2019. And they're building a symmetrical gigabit plus type of network. And those types of collaborative efforts, you know, can happen that much more quickly when we really make the decision to move forward, right? And it's not just a what could we do or you know, what should we think about for the future? It's a, we need to do it now. What's the best way to get it done? Let's move forward. But we've seen other um, ecosystems come together to identify the challenge, figure out the right fit from a network perspective. What type of architecture might you want? What type of um, terrain are we dealing with? You know, what's the best solution set? And We might be subject matter experts in the ceramics and in the glass and in the hardware, but we're not necessarily uh, the subject matter experts in boring or in, um, you know, hanging in the electrical space or, you know, some of these other things. And so that's where this idea of bringing the right people with the right skills to the table to help any end user entity accomplish their goals is really what we're here to help do is be a facilitator to bring the right people to the table, to address the needs of, you know, any individual community or operator's circumstances.
1: Another area that you spoke on uh, about thinking outside the box is finding sources of funding. And I know that's a question that, you know, at times for a utility might be front of mind that, we we know our community needs it. It's not a it's not a question of demand, and uh, we know that we, you know we we bring certain infrastructure to the table, especially if they're an electric cooperative, that will uh, help support that. But what we're concerned about is how do we pay for this thing? And uh, you had some thoughts on finding sources of funding uh, for those fiber builds that might not be the obvious most uh you know m- most traditional paths. Talk talk to our listeners about some of those ideas, some of the things that you've seen uh, that have worked for fiber builders.
0: Well, certainly the easiest course is if you've got your own, you know, coffers of cash uh, where you can fund your, your own network uh, and take kind of the the cash hit until subscribers are turned up and money starts flowing in to pay that back. Uh, Now that might be accomplished through loans um, or through, just equity that you have. The more likely um, scenario, particularly with uh, a lot of the listeners that are interested in RDOF and other things, has been government subsidies. And government subsidies have been local, they've been state, they've most recently in the news with a lot of um, commas have been uh, through the federal programs and in the FCC with RDOF. But those subsidies are you know not necessarily a huge chunk of change at the beginning to help you create the network right it's it's going to be dispersed over the course of time and you know how you choose to use that money you still have to figure out how to fund the original capital investment required to do that and as I mentioned before there's um private equity investment firms now that have been looking at broadband as a good long-term investment, much like they have um, bridges and prisons and hospitals and other kind of large construction projects that you normally think of with a, with a P3 kind of model. And so, you know, whether you've got a $5 million project or a $250 million project, there are equity investors out there um, looking for good, solid, reliable return. And fiber broadband has proven to be one of those things that that they're willing to invest in. So I think you have grants, certainly. There are loans, certainly. There are these um, subsidies. But if you don't qualify for those or you don't want to go through the red tape of getting those uh, or if you're unsuccessful in getting those, there's still money to be had in the private sector for sure.
1: So speaking of those uh, subsidies, Kara, what are some of the ways that you have seen these broadband providers uh, use those subsidies?
0: Yeah, it's it's curious. Um, a lot of people think, you know, oh, I'm just paying back my debt that I might incur, right? I'm I'm using the subsidy to pay off my loan for my CapEx expenditure, um, which is in some cases, many cases what people are using it for. Others might use it to just supplement the ongoing operational expense. And that might be it, right? It's just helping keep the machine running, if you will. Um, When you look at... Some more creative thinkers, they're saying, okay, um, my business case works at, I'm going to make up a number, you know, 40% take rate in my rural environment. But if I could garner 70 or 80% take rate, you know, that's where profits really start to to flow back and my payback is that much sooner. And so what we've seen is some people are actually looking to use their subsidy Money that they're getting from the government to actually then further subsidize additional subscriber by um, reducing the dollar amount that they need to pay per month, or providing initial installation upfront for free, or you know including home Wi-Fi equipment in the cost of their setup, or even devices so that they have devices to use on the network, whatever that may be, um, so that they then have more subscribers on the network that are paying some amount of money, maybe not exactly the ARPU they were originally intending, um, but that then helps spread the cost of operating the entirety of the network, and um, they become more sticky with those customers as well, and so potentially they turn into long-term um, subscribers not just uh, short-term subscribers that that turn off uh, onto the next thing in short order so whether they're using it to pay back their debts or they're um, helping it to just you know maintain the operational costs and and keep that machine running or actually looking at uh, creative ways to boost their their take rates and increase the people that they are um, Servicing every month, I think there you'll see a lot of different ways to use that money. Quite frankly,
1: so you mentioned earlier that uh, you know Corning, in addition to being a provider of materials and equipment, that you're really you're really a resource to the industries. And and one thing that I found to be so valuable is that you have a community broadband university that would provide a, a lot of information on various topics to those who are in the broadband business or looking to get into that. Tell us about that, uh, broad, uh, the Community Broadband University, what it entails and uh, what people might find there.
0: The Community Broadband University was actually one of the things that we created during uh, COVID because we weren't able to go do, you know, individual customer outreach or trade shows in person. And we really, we really like it. Um, it's not just corning people talking about, our products in fact there's very little salesy stuff on the community broadband university and we've invited a number of different people from all of these different parts of the ecosystem to participate and provide their perspective on different things and so there're videos that are 3 to 10 ish minutes long so you can you know watch a couple on your lunch break or uh, listen to a few while you're traveling in. They're low production quality. I'm not going to say that uh, that they're high production quality, but they are definitely meant to be short, um, to the point, impactful on a variety of different topics, whether that might be the business planning and the construction and the types of architectures, fiber broadband architectures that exist and the pros and cons of those, uh, how to choose a good distributor how to um, identify if open access networks are right for your business. There's a myriad of different topics. We've got at this time of this recording, we've got over 50 videos out there and we've got probably 60 or 70 more scheduled for this year. So if you've got a topic that you want to learn more about, um, feel free to send it our way and we'll see if it's on deck and if it isn't, and it's something we think a lot of people might be interested in learning about, we'll add it to the university. And that uh, link, if you'd like to go find that link, is corning.com forward slash CBBU for Corning Broadband University.
1: Excellent. And I've spent some time on that, and you do have uh, a wealth of information there. And I can't imagine what that's going to look like when the size of it doubles or more by the end of the year. Carrie, you have brought some interesting uh, perspectives uh, to our listeners today, and I really appreciate you uh, joining the program.
0: Thank you for the opportunity. We're super excited about helping support broadband uh, wherever it may go. Uh, certainly, the digital divide is, is not going away anytime soon, and it's going to take a village to get us to uh, to realize, you know, a shortening of that uh, time span between when people have the ability to participate in the conversation. Right? W- what we want to see. Uh, everyone in our country be able to do is participate in the global conversations that are occurring. And when you don't have access to broadband and you don't have access to the tools and the resources that counterparts in the urban areas may have, you simply can't uh, participate at the same level. And we want everybody's voice to be heard. And so that's one of the main reasons why we're so supportive of uh, rural, urban, suburban, you know telecom companies, cable TV companies, electrical cooperatives, whoever you may be, uh, we're here to uh, to help bring that vision to a reality.
1: Outstanding. Well said. Well, thank you again, Kara. And thank you for listening to Rural Broadband Today, where we take a look at the people and the issues shaping the rural broadband story across America. I'm your host, Stephen Smith, and this program is produced by WordSouth, a content marketing company. Please share this episode with your network and help us Tell the Rural Broadband story. Thank you for listening.
0: Rural Broadband Today is a production of WordSouth, a content marketing company.